Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you're listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Welcome back to Ladies Night. I'm Jennifer Jahadi, and I'm here with Maya Myers. She's a senior tournament director. She's also a FIDE international arbiter. She's one of the handful of American female IAs and the first African-American woman to hold that distinction, which she just earned in 2022. She's also a chess coach and tournament director at the Charlotte Chess Center and a repair technician at Apple. A four-time all-girls national team champ, she was born and raised in Brooklyn, formerly known as Maya McGreen. She was a member of the powerhouse junior high school team, IS318, which she attended in 2010 through 2012, along with her twin sister, Mariah McGreen. And IS318, which has won numerous national championships, was featured in the acclaimed documentary, Brooklyn Castle. Maya, thank you so much for making time between all of your jobs. It's a privilege that you carved out this hour for, for me and for Ladies Night. Yeah, no, I was very excited to uh, definitely be a part of this. So I'm glad that you reached out. I'm so excited. So you are from a chess family. Your twin sister plays chess. Your siblings play chess. You're, you started learning when you were four, right? Yeah, I started learning at four. Um, my Both my brothers um, started learning, I think, around four as well, if not maybe eight years old. But usually they've started around four has been the, the age where we've all started. Um, my dad actually taught my um, oldest brother how to play. They kind of got it as like a Christmas gift. And they're like, let's learn how to play. And then kind of after that, they've taught every single kid. And once my sister and I came along, they were like, well, they can either be each other's opponents at tournaments or each other's teammates. Why not be both? So that's how that kind of came about. So what's your very first memory of playing jazz? One I would say that probably stuck out the most. So my another reason why we got uh, so into chess was that my dad ended up becoming a tournament director very early on. And he was running a lot of the chess tournaments um, in New York City. There was one big one. It was called The Right Move. Um, and so that was a free chess tournament held once um, the first Sunday of every month. And I remember that one of the tournaments that he ran was at the Chess and Checkers house. And so there's a, I don't know if it's still there. Um, I remember if you know Adia. Um, she, yeah. 
she actually messaged me and she said when she was recently there, there was still a picture that they had up and it was me of Maurice Ashley. Um, We were playing and I was in this like little pink Winnie the Pooh vest, like trying to win. And I lost in this very, very terrible position. Um, But that was probably one of like the coolest moments just to be kind of crowded around all these chess players. I remember even like there was a picture of Casa Corley. He's there sitting like right next to me. Um, and it was kind of one of those big kind of cool moments. Like you're playing the grandmaster, like Maurice Ashley at the time at the Chess and Checkers house in New York City. So that was one of, I would say, one of my favorite moments and probably one of the earliest moments of me playing chess. How old were you at the time? Probably, I want to say around eight seven or eight years old. I recently um, was the arbiter at the uh, U.S. championship uh, for 2021. And of course, Maurice was there and I hadn't seen him probably since that time. I actually did see him like, I think two years prior, he uh, stopped in at the like Apple store one day in New York. And of all people, I like recognized him. Um, So I went and said hi. But since before that time, I hadn't seen him since I was probably seven, eight years old. So once I visited uh, and I went to the U.S. championship, I actually pulled up that picture and I showed him like, hey, you uh, you definitely had hair back then. <laughs> and uh, this was a picture of you playing me. So that was pretty cool. And so when you ran into him at the Apple store, what did he say? Did he remember you then or you didn't have the photo ready? He didn't. Honestly, he didn't know uh, who I was. I didn't have the photo ready at that time. I think he was just kind of kind of struck at the fact that someone just kind of knew him out of nowhere. All of my coworkers knew that my sister and I were very big into chess. So before I went over to him, he was a, I was telling all my coworkers who he was. So they were all staring at him. So at some point he was like, okay, like, what's up? Like, what's, why are you guys looking at me? And then that's when I came over and I was like, yeah. So I was telling them like how big you are in chess. So they just wanted to meet you. And I just wanted to say hi. That was definitely cool just to be able to see him and help him out as well while he was there. Your sister, Mariah McGreen, she's your twin sister, as we said. And uh, mm-hmm. was she there? You said that she also worked with you at Apple. Yeah, right? uh, we worked at the uh, we worked at the same store. Originally, she actually didn't want to work for Apple. She was mostly just directing chess tournaments and teaching um, at a bunch of different schools. So she was like, mm, I don't want to put it like, a, and we were going to school full time as well at the same time. So she was like, I don't want to put myself with just more stress. Um, and eventually she was like, well, you seem to actually like this job. Maybe I might like it too. So um, eventually she kind of hopped on the bandwagon and, and joined me and she's been here ever since. So, and now she's actually moved to my store in North Carolina. So now I get to be with her here as well. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I imagine the the bond of being a twin sister is pretty precious. Yeah, it's definitely cool working there because um, let's say if I was at the time working in sales um, and I needed her help to like, I needed to walk off, but I needed her help to help a customer like set up a phone. I'd be like, well, I'm sorry, I can't stay to like after you purchase this phone. But here's a person who looks exactly like me and has a great work ethic and she'd love to help you finish setting up your phone. And so they would be introduced to Mariah and it would be like a great experience. What advice do you have for people who have twins if they're trying to teach them chess? Because I'm sure the instinct is to like, just let them play each other all the time. I would just say encouragement is like the biggest thing. One thing I will say is you always 
they usually say competition is best because it might motivate the other person to just like be better than the other brother or the other sister. There's the other sibling, but honestly, just motivation to say, Hey, you've been doing amazing. Like let's continue to do this. So I I would honestly say just continue to do that. Everyone works at a, a different pace. And the funny part I'd always say is every single year we'd play each other, we would see who would be the one to beat the other person. So like one year I would always beat Mariah in a chess game. The next year she would always beat me in a game. And I would say rating is not, I know people use chess ratings as a way to measure like how good or how they progress. And a lot of the time my sister would be either like a hundred points below me, but in honesty, like in all honesty, she was actually the same strength. Some, some years I couldn't beat her and I was still a hundred points higher than her. So I just say, as long as you guys are continuing to make sure that you're lifting one another up, like that's, that's what I would say was my biggest thing. Like if I were to ever have twins one day, right. Um, Or even I actually used to coach twin girls. Um, That was one of the biggest things that I said, I would always remember just, just lift each other up. Try not to create like a culture of toxic competition. Yeah. My issue with that is rather than you focusing on your love of chess, you're just focusing on the other person. And the goal is to focus on chess and focus on yourself and be better. But you, you sometimes forget that when you're constantly focusing on someone else. That's definitely what I would, I would bring out of that. Yeah. Brilliantly said. I mean, and for the parents and the coaches to kind of like steer that in the right direction. Obviously we're not going to stop people from comparing themselves to each other entirely, but you can certainly push the uh, the envelope in that in that direction. By the way, there's uh, two famous twins, um, Alyssa Maric and Miriana Maric. They were both WGMs. And of course, there's a tremendous tradition, particularly in women's jazz, by the way. This is even more pronounced in women's jazz, that uh, siblings and sisters um, do very well, like the uh, Polgar sisters, the Maric twins. And now um, the contemporary sisters, the Muzichuk sisters, even Alexander Kostanyuk, her younger sister was very good at chess. She didn't become professional like Alex, but um, the examples are very prominent. And my, my own brother, of course, plays chess. Uh, why do you think this is even more of a trend when it comes to girls and women? Probably cost effective. <laughs> um, I would say one of those things. I've noticed when even teaching in my own schools that we have a lot of siblings that, that play, uh, and they might be, you know, different ages. They might be, uh, maybe one year apart or sometimes even twins. And I think when they see their sibling enjoying something, they're kind of curious and they're like, maybe I might like that too, or maybe I should try that out. And then it, it does end up turning into Again, as you said, we can't stop at comparing ourselves to one another. It, it does become the little thing of, hey, can I beat my brother? Can I beat my sister? Or can I get to similar strengths or even higher? And so I think that might be just the curiosity, wanting to know if, if you know, you can be better than the other person or if you can be just as good. Um, and just that kind of level of competition uh, and adding that confidence to yourself. So I would say that I've noticed mainly most siblings enter it because they see their siblings do it. I know what growing up for me, I watched um, my brother play piano and all of a sudden I was like, well, I want to play. And so that was just like, it was like, if he's enjoying it for all these years, maybe I can too. 
So I would say probably chess is no different. If you see your your sibling enjoying it and they're constantly going, you want to be a part of that too. You may you may even want to be the person that plays them when they get up or when they get home. I hear kids all the time saying, "Oh, my dad beats me and all oh, my mom beats me." But sometimes it's nice to have someone who hasn't learned chess for, you know, years and you have someone who's only learned chess for maybe a year or two um and then you can have a little uh, opponent at home as well. By the way, I just 318 was your middle school alma mater and you went there when the acclaimed documentary Brooklyn Castle was being filmed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Were you um, featured in the film and what was it like having cameras in the school when you were playing jazz? It was a very cool experience. I The funny part was the first day I got there, um, the way the school is set up is they go through numbers of like six being sixth grade. So 601 to maybe 618 and all of the even numbers. So it might be like, for instance, I was in the class 606. So even till this day, I think it's probably the same way. The class 606 was always named as the chess class. They put all the chess players in there. Um, I did take a test so they could see academically where I would stand. Um, but the class 606 was the class I was in. And I think that also majority helped because whenever we would go to nationals um, or any tournaments, it wouldn't really affect the teachers. Like they weren't randomly pulling out five kids from one class, five kids from the other class. They just pull out 606 and send them to nationals. And then the teachers kind of maybe get a break for like a, a few days. That was known as the chess class. My sister, of course, I don't know if there was a rule. There might have been a rule at the time where they said twins couldn't be in the same class. So she ended up being in a different class um, than me. But uh, if it was possible, I think they would have put her in 606 as well. The first day that I got to IS318, I was just sitting in class and getting ready to be introduced to who my homeroom teacher was. And all of a sudden, the door opens and I see this big camera, like attached to Katie. And she's just panning the room. And that's kind of a, that's actually one of the scenes that you'll see when, when you watch Brooklyn Castle is there's, and I, I'm actually in there as well. Um, but there's just a scene of just her panning this 606 chess class, just to see like these bright new faces that are starting. It was also the class that Justice Williams was in as well. I was with him for three years in the same exact class for every single subject. But that was just one of like the biggest things that I knew. And so once I saw that camera, I was like, wow, this documentary is probably going to be big. Um, And I would love to be a part of it. I definitely did some interviews throughout the two years when, when they were finishing up. But it was definitely cool to do a bunch of double takes of them wanting us to like walk from the corner of the school, walking in and just constantly doing that back and forth till they got like their good shot. I also did um, an interview when um, Pobo F. Coro, um, he was running for president, uh, for school president, and they wanted just kind of like how I felt about Pobo and um, what type of person he was. And those are kind of really nice to, to be a part of. Obama, right? Wasn't that? Yeah, it's Obama. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. remember. I remember that from the movie. What a tremendous talk. Now I have to ask, was it hard? Because this happens to me all the time. Like I'm used to it. I'm like a veteran of this stuff. Like just the other day I was interviewed by NPR and they like for like an hour and they like just cut it all. And I, I was interviewed by some other, other documentary a couple of years ago, same thing happened. It just, it happens. Right. But for 
a child, it, was that difficult to be interviewed extensively and then not make the final cut? No, because I think at the end of the day, I mean, I had, I had, I didn't want to have any expectations. We talk about, uh, like in the movie, you see probably 30 kids that go to nationals are a part of this. I mean, they mainly focused on, I think like five, but I wanted to not have any expectations. My biggest thing that I focused on was just mainly being good at chess. The regimen, I would say at how much chess I studied during those three years was a lot. And I remember just being pulled out of um, after school to do that interview. And then I was like, well, I need to get back to my practice game now. So I'll see you later. But I hope that you liked like what I said. Um, I hope that it, it helps. But at the end of the day, I think when I saw the uh, documentary for the first time, it was, um, I believe it was in Minnesota. We were at Nationals and they uh, took us to this offsite where they were actually showing the film. And once I saw it and I didn't see it in there, I was a little sad. But at the end of the day, I was like, eh, it, it's not about me. There's a bigger picture to the story. Whether my five seconds of fame like doesn't get in there like the point of it was to was to talk about the chess team and I was like that one small small part of it the big thing I definitely um, got out of it was the New York Times actually came to the school after 318 had won their big triumph it was like the first middle school to like win the high school nationals and the New York Times actually came to the school and I actually had no idea they were coming. And my sister and I just so happened to be dressing the exact same, like Converse. We had blue skinny jeans. We had these Minnesota twin like shirts on and they took a picture of that. But I was actually much more excited uh, when they actually put me in the New York Times than <laughs> the actual documentary. That's such a healthy attitude. I mean, that's exactly right. That like sometimes you do something and it doesn't it doesn't pan out exactly the way you want, but then it like leads to something else. And this is a really good example of it because being featured in the New York Times is, of course, like really prestigious. I love the movie and it sounds like you did as well. Uh, do you have a favorite part of the movie? The funny part is I've seen this movie probably seven times. <laughs> I don't think I have a favorite part. I just think my fa- actually, no, I think I do have a favorite part. There was one where Rochelle Valentine had just lost a game. Um, it was one of uh, an important game at national. She had lost her game. And she walked into the playing hall. Uh, she walked back into the team room and John Galvin at the time uh, looks at her and, and uh, Elizabeth Vickery now, now is Spiegel. Um, she looks at her as well. And you can just see the eye contact that, you know, John's like, you know, how'd you do? And she just mumbles. And then she walks in the opposite direction. And I think that is actually one of the parts that stood out to me because it tells you that, you know, even at that age, she was like, 12, 13 years old, she felt like a duty to her team. And just to be able to like feel that just at that age and to know that you have power and you have an ability to like make this chess team so big. I think that that was cool. And and just her disappointment. I kind of uh, aligned with that even when I would go to nationals and I was like very nervous because I didn't want to let my team down and I could just align with just her disappointment and then her willingness to want to be better right after that. Like just seeing that emotion in her face, it just felt real. It it was real. Yeah. That's beautiful filmmaking when the face and the expression shows so much more than 
the words, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's a, that is a beautiful scene. So you were obviously taught and exposed to a lot of Elizabeth Spiegel's um, work. She's just a, absolutely brilliant um, in her coaching and her strategies. She's come to the Girls Club for U.S. Chess Women a few times to like give lessons on open files and works on the seventh rank. People, if you're listening to that, you should check them out because you not only learn a lot about those topics, but also about effective teaching. My question is, what it was the most important thing you learned from her? I would say the ability to be consistent. For most kids that are learning chess, back then, some of them might have had it. Um, they might have had like a private chess lesson maybe once a week. Now it's gotten a little bit more, especially in New York, it's been more normalized to have chess in the schools. I think 318 um, was one of the big front runners in starting that. I don't know if you know this, but the way like my schedule or the chess, the chess schedule was set up, especially for the kids that were in 606, we had a chess class starting at 740. And that lasted between 45 minutes to an hour. And then we had two hours of chess class in the middle of the day. And then you had after school for about an hour and a half that same day. And you did that for Monday through Friday. And that went towards your your grade on your report card. And it meant it wasn't just a thing where, okay, you did your homework, you got your grade, it was good, and then you go on your merry way. Like You wanted to do well. And it was just the ability to know that we were getting chess homework every single day. She wanted us to know our openings like the back of our hand and just constantly knowing that we needed to be on top of our game every day. And there's days where you have your off days and that's okay. But just her ability to know that you need to stay up on your tactics. Like she was looking at our chess tempos and seeing if we did the allotted tactics and just knowing that we did our homework every day and we studied our openings and we passed our opening tests. That is what led us to being great. I know that when I started IS318, I was rated a little bit over a thousand. And by the end, of IS-318. And once I got into ninth grade, I got to at least 1880 within that three to four year period of time. Um, And I definitely wouldn't have been able to do without her pushing me every single day to make sure I knew my openings. I did my tactics and just doing that Monday through Friday, making sure I went to a chess tournament every Saturday and putting that into practice. So I'd say that's definitely her consistency and her ability to constantly push me was one of the biggest reasons as to why I got to where I was. That's amazing. And so true about studying chess, but also true about the game itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can find a brilliant uh, move, you can play brilliant openings, but if you uh, blunder too often, you're definitely not going to have as strong results as somebody who is consistent throughout the game and doesn't blunder a lot, which that vigilance that chess requires can be very punishing, but it's also like, I think in some ways it's a good metaphor for life because it is really important not to make those huge blunders, you know, when you're, you know, driving or when you're just living your life. Right. Yeah. And, and even if you do, right, it creates such an impact in your mind that you're like, wait, I don't want that to ever happen again. And so you just, it kind of forces your mind to remember, Hey, if this, this pattern, right, this pattern looks like what happened before, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. When it comes to blundering in chess and, you know, blundering in life, of course, 
those create those core moments in your memory to make sure, you know, I did this before and it led to a very bad place. Let's, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. And I think that was, that's definitely a big part there. It's okay to mess up, but then making that mistake again, right? Why would we want to put ourselves in that position? Do you ever remember that becoming clear, whether in life or in chess to you with a specific game or incident? Well, I know for a fact it was terrible at openings. I'm terrible to this day. Uh, It's more of a memory thing. I think that's the part that um, gets me. And I, again, I talk about consistency due to the fact that I myself, even though someone else was pushing me, due to the fact that I wasn't constantly consistent in practice, right? Practicing my openings and understanding why you do the things you do in every, I mean, and that goes for life too, right? you don't do things just because you're told to do them. I mean, sometimes when you're growing as a kid, you might, but you want to be able to do things because you understand why you're doing them. Um, Not because you're just being told to do them. And that's the same with openings. No one ever tells you to memorize. I mean, you might not be a great coach if you do, but no one ever tells you to memorize your openings. You want to be able to understand why you're making the moves that you're making in your games. Because if you don't, then that leads you to making blunders, missing things. And I think that that's the, probably the, uh, the biggest thing is you, you want to be able to understand. You don't want to just memorize. You don't want to be a robot. You want to be human. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and it also makes you remember things better when you do that. So w- when did you make the pivot to becoming one of the great tournament directors in the country. As I mentioned earlier, you are an international arbiter, one of the only female ones in the United States and the first ever African-American IA. Once I made the decision to move to North Carolina, that's where it all changed for me. Because when I was in New York, I was doing a lot of U.S. chess-based scholastic tournaments. And then once I moved to North Carolina, of course, scholastic chess is, is big here as well. But international events, FIDE events were very big here. And that that has to do with uh, one of the first tournaments that I ended up working was the U.S. Masters. That's the tournament where I actually got my, my first ever norm as a national arbiter. I wanted to see what's the difference. One thing I will say um, it, that's hard about being a senior tournament director with U.S. Chess and then an international arbiter is the switch in rules. For instance, U.S. Chess, the biggest rule you need to know is if you see something on the board doesn't look right, whether it might be an illegal move, like you can't say anything. You cannot interfere. And with, with FIDE, it's the complete opposite. They want you to interfere like as soon as you see it. Like it is your duty to be able to, to, to see that and to, and to say, Hey, this is, this is not right to fix this. And and then maybe even inflict a penalty on that. And what drew me to that is especially with being like 1800 in chess, I like that I could put my chess knowledge into play. Like I could actually walk around a room and feel like, oh, if I see five-fold repetition, right, I could actually intervene and say something in a FIDE event. If I see three-fold or five-fold in a U.S. chess tournament, I can't say anything. I just got to like sit there and just like wait 75 moves till there's no pawn move or capture move. And then I can say something. And if there's an illegal move, I just got to let it be. And I think that that was the part where 
I felt like I went from just needing to be the person that knew the rules to actually like putting my own like chess player knowledge into play as well as being like an arbiter. And that's where FIDE kind of helps out. I can actually like watch the games in a different way than I would have if I was doing like a U.S. chess tournament. If you could change any rule about chess, what would it be? That's kind of a hard one. Probably, as I said, for U.S. chess, I'd wish that we could just intervene. But for FIDE, their time controls are kind of what I think I still struggle with today because most FIDE tournaments use 30 second increment. And depending on the time control, you, you could be there for six hours and not know if it's ever ending. And I think that's what I would say. There's a rule in FIDE that basically states if you are using 30 second increment, you have to continue to notate the entire game. So I would probably say stop the notation with 30 second increments so that people can just play their game and then we can get to checkmate or draw or stalemate and then kind of be over with it. I would probably say that because once you get once you get to a, a game that's taking six, six and a half hours to finish, then it becomes more draining, not only for the players, but then also for the person who's watching out for the illegal moves, threefold and fivefold repetition um, to see if they can make a claim on it. And I, I would say that. Yeah, it can be hard, even though it's like, seems like a lot of time, 30 seconds, like, that's a good point that you can't really go to the bathroom or take a break if somebody's like playing on the 30 second increment, which could be for like for hours if in certain cases, like if one player has more time and the other players on the 30 second, it could be hours of time pressure. Yeah, interesting. Being one of a handful of female tournament directors in the the first African-American IA of having diversity and like the staffing and the organizing and arbitration of chess tournaments. I think it's pretty important to feel like you're represented. I mean, there's uh, the rule that, you know, if there is any, like for free day, for instance, if a player does need to be like searched, like it has to be by the same sex. Like, uh, so, you know, if you have a male chess player, it needs to be a male arbiter. And so it's like, what happens if you have female chess players playing in a tournament? Where's your like FIDE? Where's your female arbiter? So I think from that, from just a rule standpoint, or like that's helpful if there needs to be anything like more invasive than just looking through a backpack, for instance. But I think it just helps in a game that is so dominated by males playing it. It's nice to see when there's a female in the room and knows what she's doing. It just makes it feel like, you know, this is an all-inclusive game, not just one-sided. And I think that that is one of the biggest things that I feel like I bring to the table is just that feeling of knowing that there's anyone can, can learn. Anyone can learn chess and anyone can learn to be an arbiter as well and do the job and be aware of what's going on in the room. That, I would say, would be the the biggest part of just seeing females in the room and knowing that they're there for everyone and can do it. You mentioned earlier Maurice Ashley. You talked a little bit about Elizabeth Spiegel. Um, did you have any role models from that world of, like, organizing and being an arbiter, directing? When I was living in New York, my I would say who my mentor was um, growing up was Sophia Rhodes. 
she was the one that ultimately, I think once I was 14 years old, I want to say once I turned 14, I was working at the New York City and the New York State Championship. And she was definitely, I would say, the front runner in molding me and making sure I could handle everything to the point where the state championship in which Tawny won and that created that big media, I was the chief of that section. And so just to be be able to go from not doing anything when it came to tournament directing to all of a sudden being the chief of the New York state championship, she was helping me and getting to that point. Like she was the person that got me to be at that level when I was in New York. So I would say growing up, Sophia Road was like my person. She was my mentor. She helped Mariah, uh, my sister, um, get to her level. And then even my brother Jabari, he was also, it was a family affair, to be honest. Both my parents were tournament directors for her. Both my brothers were tournament directors. And then it was, everyone was a tournament director for her. But I felt very special knowing that I wouldn't have gotten to at least being a a senior tournament director without her help. I did not know the thing about Hani Adewumi, uh, that you were the tournament director at that. That's so cool because it really speaks to what we said earlier about representation, that this is like really looking back, that's such an historic moment in chess. He um, won that section and that kind of, like, as you said, instigated the New York Times piece, again, the New York Times by Nicholas Kristoff, a series of pieces and then a GoFundMe. And now he's on track to become one of the uh, the great grandmasters and breaking all these records. And uh, yeah, just very picture picturesque to think that like your tournament directing career, which is also historic, coincided with that. And speaking of records, Sophia broke a record for being the youngest international arbiter at the time when she got it in 1984. Yes, she was 12 years older or something like that. Yeah, she definitely has that record in the bag. Like no one can ever take that from her, which she let us know that it it is the case. I'm I'm glad to know that um, like whenever she does um, introduce herself and it was kind of cool, she does so she was like, I'm international, like I'm a uh, international organizer, like Sophia Road. Um, and just knowing that you see that, um, like a female can say that and and be named as that, it's amazing. As where I mean, again, that's why I'm kind of doing what I'm doing. Like I, I got my international arbiter title. Um, I'm so, so close to getting my national tournament director title. Um, so it would be great to put those both those things under my belt it was honestly one of those she was one of those reasons why I got to where I was at I mean I honestly had no idea anything about FIDE till I moved to North Carolina and Grant Owen was the one that put me on to all this information but growing up and um, getting to know Sophia Road she was a reason why I wanted to get whatever the highest title was for each Federation, whether that was U.S. Chess or FIDE. I love that. Wanting to get the highest title there is. What is it? Let me get that. That's that's epic. Is it difficult or amazing to go from Brooklyn to Charlotte? I mean, New Yorker, Brooklynite, it must be a bit of a culture shock, probably pros and cons, huh? Yes. I would say 
the food is amazing in New York. That's what I would always say. But when my husband, um, Dominique Myers, when he would come to visit New York and he would also, I would actually hire him for certain tournaments that I would run. His ongoing joke was that um, he would point to a tree that was on a sidewalk and he's like, yeah, see, we actually have grass and trees in North Carolina. This is not considered a tree. This is a bush. And that is all that New York has. And so that was another reason why I decided to um, move to North Carolina. It was one of the things that I fell in love with was just the greenery, the space that you could just see beauty all around versus the New York MTA system, the train system is not the prettiest. The buildings on every single corner aren't, but I do remember being able to constantly walk like 30 blocks in New York City and not feel bored because there was something that you could always look at that was going on. There's beauty on both ends, I would say, to New York versus North Carolina. But I honestly do love where I where I am now, um, and I wouldn't go back on it. It was a hard decision because when I was leaving New York, I was having to think about all the things that I felt like I was giving up. There was a number of schools that I was teaching at, a number of tournaments that I was running friends and family, of course, that I was leaving. And I was like, am I going to be able to do that when I get to North Carolina? I felt like I had all this respect and all this power and everyone knew who I was in New York. And then I was going to North Carolina where no one knew me. And I actually had to feel like I had to build myself back up so that the chess center knew like the type of chess teacher I was and the type of tournament director I was. That was definitely a hard part, but honestly, like I wouldn't change it. Yeah, well, you managed to conquer that world as well. It seems like you're well situated there and you're you're married to a chess player, Dominique, right? Yeah, he um he's a national master, now life master. So I'm just glad that um he's still able to play chess. He teaches chess for a living. Like that is his 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. job. But then when he gets home, most people want to sit back, relax, watch some TV. And that is not him. Like his way of relaxing is playing four to five hours of like bullet and blitz and like seeing if he can get his ratings like 3,500 on WeChess. I'm like, I don't know. So that's just where he's at. But um, that's just what makes him happy. And I'm, I feel grateful that I met someone and married someone who actually shares passion that I grew up, you know, learning and living with. So whenever I play in chess tournaments and whether I'd be sad if I lost or whatnot, I just know that after my game, I can go over to my husband and be like, okay, let's go over this game. Where where did I go wrong? Um, And that's kind of, I think the cool part of knowing someone who is so into chess and loves chess, probably more than I do. Well, it sounds like he's got his bullet game worked out. I mean, whoa, that's a, uh, I need to. I don't know. I mean, he's nowhere close to Daniel Naradisky and he tries to be, but uh, so far I think he's trying to, I think he's worked his way up to either 24, 2,500, 24, 2,500. Nowhere close to Tanya Naroditsky. That's like still um, quite high. You know, you're, you're comparing. Yeah, that's a good that's a good comparison to be at. I know Daniel's probably he usually tries to get to 3200 on a good day. If uh, Dominique can do as as much uh, preparing and practicing as possible. And it, I honestly, at the end of the day, as I said, rating is just one part of it is he loves the game like 
no matter what the rating is. And just to see him be able to play 50 games in one night and sometimes even more, just that just makes him happy. And I feel like if that's your happy place, who am I to, to shut away from that? Just do you. I feel the opposite when I play bullet. I feel like I feel depleted and my brain feels kind of fried, but that's probably partly because I'm not good at it. I feel like when you're good at things, they feel more, they feel more fulfilling, right? You know, bullet, I think does have a special type of eye coordination that it privileges and type of brain for sure. So, you know, what's cool that you have blazed your own trail in chess and um, your twin sister has also done amazing things in the game. Can you have any general advice to people who are, you know, looking to make a career in chess and need some inspiration to create their own path? I would say if they're wanting to become a tournament director, for instance, or whether that be like, is this for, is this just as a tournament director or as a chess player? They want to do their own thing in chess and make a stamp on the chess world. Put yourself out there and do your, do your research, I would say. And it just depends. I think you have to really dig deep down in yourself and realize why are you doing it? Like, what are the reasons for why you want to do what you do? For me, I think it's just the the ability just to be able to make a name for yourself and just to say, hey, I left this world knowing that Maya Myers worked at Apple, you know, is an international arbiter, hopefully is a national tournament director, right? Actually got to uh, arbitrate the US championship. Like you have all these different things that you can say, like you pushed yourself to do and to be a part of and and be proud of. And, and, And it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be all in a in a year. It, uh, I know a lot of people um, when they learn at something, they think that it's just a diagonal line, like it can only go up from here. Sometimes there's times, like I said, where I moved from New York to North Carolina, and I had to kind of start back from square one and kind of let people know who I was. And that's okay. It's going to go up and down, but just know that eventually, like you're going to be to the point where you're this amazing person that everyone wants you to be there. They want to see your face. They want to see your name. um, And you're going to be known as that person. And I think that's kind of what I strive to be. Like, I want it to be Maya Myers, International Arbiter, NTD, and, and hopefully the Olympiad. That's my next goal is actually the Olympiad to be an arbiter for that. So as long as you have some goals set in life, just go for it. I love that. You aim high and you do so many things well, and you have so much positive energy. I mean, I think the positivity shines through in these difficult times. You need that to like keep your, keep your gas and to keep going. So it's fantastic. How should we keep in touch with you? I, I know that you're on the Charlotte Chess Center staff page. Um, is there any kind of social media or other way to keep up to date with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can always like friend me on Facebook or send me a direct message on Instagram. I don't really post much on either platform, but I'm very much aware of what's going on both platforms. So I I respond pretty quickly, as you noticed when you sent a message to me. So definitely, yeah, send me a message if uh, anyone has any questions on how to get started um, in the chess world um, as an arbiter, as a chess player. And that could be on Facebook or that could be on Instagram. Thanks so much for all that you do and for taking the time to talk to me. I had a blast. 
Maya Myers, IA, tournament director, head coach at Charlotte Chess Center, Apple technician, does so many things well and did a wonderful job for us on Ladies Night. Thank you again. Thank you. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess Suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish I got it all wrong After slightly Dear Capablanco